We last spoke to you about uh, Dr. Ignacio Chapella on this program a good, I believe, year and a half ago, and um, we're happy to report that he is now finally able to come on and talk to us directly. Uh, Dr. Ignacio Chapella, welcome to Radio Parallax. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. We reported on the conversations we'd had with you to our audience, but we didn't actually put you put you on the air. And to be honest, I'm not clear on some of the some of the things that um, how they were finally resolved with you in Berkeley. Could you update us a bit on what happened there? Yes, I can give you an update, even though it is far from being resolved. Um, the situation now is uh, in a wait pattern. Um, the university found itself uh, second thinking. Uh, their decision not to give tenure in my case, that means not to keep me on the job. Uh, so they they decided to go back and think about it again. This mostly because of a very large outcry from across the world, around the world. Uh, there was an outpour of support letters, uh, phone calls, faxes, emails coming into the chancellor's office. Okay, so it's very much still up in the air. It is, it is up in the air, and um, there is no clear deadline. The, the administration at the university does not hold itself to any deadlines. So at, at present, you were still at UC Berkeley? That's correct. All right, and we should just, by way of review, uh, I think it would be good for this topic, what we're going to talk about, the upcoming conference on uh, the, the future of food here in, in Sacramento and Davis, and the, and the, uh, the documentary film, The Future of Food. Um, uh, we should just backtrack a bit to for our audience about what happened when you reported on findings of genetically modified corn in Mexico that people had said simply wouldn't be found but you and your research assistants found it anyway yes well a very it's a very simple um, discovery it's a very simple thing even though it evidently had uh, major consequences the discovery itself is simple we found pieces of the DNA of the heritable material from industrial transgenic corn in the genome within the cells of the local land races, the local varieties that farmers grow in Mexico, in the southern state of Oaxaca. Um, the startling discovery was uh, really to find it there because um, Mexico had and continues to have to this day a ban on uh, the planting of transgenic corn anywhere. So the nearest legal field of transgenic materials, transgenic plants, should have been hundreds of miles away. So right. finding this DNA within the local land races was pretty startling. Now, one thing I think we want to emphasize, when I, when I got my degree at biological sciences here at this university back in the late 19, 1970s, there was much emphasis on retaining genetic variability from the various seed crops around the world. And what that involved was going back to where the crops originated, because that's where you find the greatest variability. I don't think people realize when we talk about Mexico, that is the center from which corn came, thereby magnifying the effect of having a contamination of the original sources of corn. Exactly right. That, that really is, is the significance of it. Um, specifically, this area in Oaxaca is the place where we know the oldest uh, remnants of domesticated corn. So we believe that this is where corn was actually domesticated, in these very places, about 10,000 years ago. And it has been kept by people that long in these areas.
I remember it being talked about when I was a student that you'd go to Ethiopia where they felt you could get original varieties of wheat. And, and yet what we're talking about right now, one of the great important side issues in this, this matter of genetic uh, transmodified uh, food, is that this will supplant all over the world the numerous varieties that farmers have retained for their own seed crop. That's right. That, that really is, the, is the, the problem. As you say, each, each crop, each of the major crops uh, originated, obviously, in a given place on planet Earth. You know, rice in Southeast Asia, potatoes in the Andes, corn in Mexico, and so on. Uh, and it is in these places where we uh, have the repository of diversity that we need for the future. Uh, every time that a new pest or a new disease or the environment changes, uh, we need to go back to those places and find genes that can be reinserted into the industrial crop to maintain productivity. So losing that diversity is something that we should all be very concerned about. Um, it didn't stop in the 70s, you know, that's very much actual still today. Again, I want to plug the documentary, The Future of Food. It's excellent. It will be playing tonight, March 31st, in the Crest Theater, 1013 K Street, and tomorrow night, April 1st, in the Veterans Memorial Theater, 203 East 14th Street here in Davis. And you'll be attending both those events, I understand. Yes, it's going to be at least uh, Deborah Garcia, who is the director, and myself. I don't know if there will be other people in a panel after the, after the uh, showing of the film. This documentary has one piece in it that just, just struck me between the eyes. I was not aware of this, and I find it to be absolutely stunning, was the fact that um, it is now legally possible for corporations to go and, and claim a patent on a particular variety of, of these foods, which we're talking about, people gathering from all over the world. If no one else has patented it, it's up for grabs, basically. Yeah, it is, it is quite startling, isn't it? It is quite, quite amazing. So there has been a scramble for uh, patents over varieties, over different qualities of these varieties uh, by different people, some um, academic institutions, as well as, of course, uh, corporations. You hear stories that people have been sent letters by lawyers growing some seed in New Mexico or even across the border in Mexico being advised that they must now pay a royalty to a company they've never heard of for a seed that's been in their family for, for, for centuries. That's right, that's right. That has been the case with, in, in several instances already, um, several of them in Mexico, but also in India with the name tree, for example, uh, in which, you know, somebody decides to patent and then they go uh, back and they say, now you have to pay us royalties on this patent that we have. Some people describe it as an enclosure of the commons. You know, we used to have genetic resources as a, as a common good of humanity. And we would exchange strains, seeds, uh, genes between laboratories or breeding programs or even farmers, farmer to farmer, freely. And, uh, and this has been a major shift in our times where uh, people are hoping to profit from these exchanges. So it's, it's really quite crazy, I think. There's several bits of st startling data I wanted to run past you. John Stauber was on our program last week, and he said that uh, that Mexico was now a net importer of corn, which I found to be an amazing. Yes, it is quite amazing. In the year when we did the discovery of the contamination of the Mexican corn, Mexico was producing just as much corn as it needed, and yet it was importing about 5 to 6 million tons of corn from the U.S. Higher quality corn was being 
sent back to the U.S. for higher-end food products. As it is today, as far as I understand, Mexico is, as you said, a net, a net importer of, uh, of corn, mostly from the U.S. And one of the big reasons for that is that it's just very cheap to get that corn from the international market because of subsidies that are paid to farmers and to the whole production system and transportation and so on here in the U.S. So your tax dollars, my tax dollars, go a long way into maintaining this system in which a farmer in Mexico finds it much more expensive to put their own seed on the ground than to buy it from from the international market. This also raises the issue of feeding cattle uh, corn, which is so cheap, it's cheaper than it, than it is to raise the corn. But that's a, that's a topic for another day, I suppose. That's right. But uh, another thing that was startling, I'd like your comment on, the, on this video that I, I was just amazed at, was an example of a farmer in Canada who basically lost control of his rapeseed, canola oil, uh, because it was found that evidently a truck had driven past his field with genetically modified rapeseed. It had contaminated his field, and the courts ruled that whether it was intentional or not, he still then basically had to pay the company that was producing the genetically modified seed. That's right. You know, in the end, this decision was upheld uh, this year uh, by the Supreme Court of Canada. They did not charge this farmer, Percy Schmeiser, um, the fees because they figured that he had not made any profit on it. But they still upheld the right uh, by Monsanto to sue people who become uh, contaminated with his seed. So it's a very strange situation as you know, the, the example of the cow, you know, you bring a cow into a field and the cow goes over to your, to your neighbors, and then you would be able to sue your neighbors for having your cow in their field, <laughs> instead of you having to pay your neighbor for the damage that your cow might have caused. Uh, we really have been turning the table upside down in this case, and um, nobody really knows where we're going to end. At this point, there are uh, an estimated at least 500 family farms that are being sued in the same manner that Percy Schmeiser was sued in, uh, in Canada. These families are being sued in the U.S. And uh, the prospect is very clear that similar lawsuits will be brought against farmers around the world. It's mind-boggling. Yeah, yeah, it really is incredible. All right, we are speaking with UC Berkeley professor Ignacio Chapella about genetically modified foods. Dr. Chappelle, I was watching uh, watching this documentary with a friend of mine who's not a biologist, who has no interest much in any of this, and he asked a question to me, what, what was so different about having a genetically modified food escape into the environment and just the age-old method of hybridization? Why, why would this be such a problem? That's a very good question. And uh, first of all, we need to establish that there is a difference between traditional breeding and this transgenic or genetically modified manipulation. Um, what we're talking about is not simply crossing corn with corn or you know canola with canola. We're talking about introducing DNA, genetic material from, let's say, a fish into the plant or a bacterium into corn, a human into corn. You know, people are doing that. Uh, so it's a, it's a radically different procedure it's a, it's a it's a very different procedure that and, and the, the the actual method to achieve this goal requires the introduction of pieces of DNA that make this DNA more promiscuous it makes it uh, leave more progeny into future generations so if you can play out several generations of 
of this situation where the corn that you introduced is particularly promiscuous, that is going to leave more progeny, then you can see how over several generations you would crowd out, you would push out most of the varieties of diverse plants that um, you would like to keep, but uh, are really just pushed out by the promiscuity of these of these particular plants. When I was a student here, they were talking about um, about tomatoes, and there was a particular problem. I forget what it was, a fungus or something like that. And, and in order to, to rectify the situation, they went back to the Andes to find where the tomatoes had originated and were able to find certain varieties that, that fixed the problem by the, the repository of all this genetic material. And again, we're talking about basically poisoning the well. Well, very much so, and uh, for, for very quick profit. And uh, I think we're doing this in a very, very uh, short-sighted way. Uh, I do believe that we'll find ourselves in trouble. Um, you know, maybe not our generation, maybe we'll be fine, but how about our children and their children? I think sooner or later we'll hit a point where we will be confronted with problems that we will not have the resources to resolve. Let's talk about a couple of those. A lot of people have raised the possibility of, of Monsanto putting, putting a Roundup gene into its crop so that you can then spray the fields and the, and, and the crop survives while the weeds die. But people have pointed out that it might very, might very much be possible, and it's already been demonstrated, that this Roundup-ready gene can escape into the, the weeds that are similar to the crop plant and thereby create super weeds. That's right. You know, by definition, the worst weed is the closest relative to your crop, right? Because it grows within the same conditions, their seeds are similar, it's very difficult to separate it from your, from your uh, crop. So, and it is precisely with these weeds, with the worst weeds, that uh, the crops have the most compatibility to exchange genes with. There is a lot of crossover, a lot of uh, recombination between the crop and the wild relatives. So it's not just a hypothetical thing anymore. We are seeing many different weeds behaving uh, resistant to Roundup, and uh, that is a problem that we really don't know how to solve, apart from going back to old methods of herbicide applications, things that were banned already, like, for example, atrazine, uh, that is banned in Europe. It's not banned here, but it's preferred not to use atrazine because it has a long-term residual in the, in the ground and uh, can, can really do a lot of harm to, to wildlife and so on. The BBC reported uh, already two years ago that Monsanto had uh, been mixing up to 70% of atrazine into their jars of Roundup <laughs> just to make sure that the weeds would die because they were not dying anymore. Well, let's, let's raise a couple other technical issues that, that are realistic when they, when they talk about uh, some, some real concerns. In, in Michael Pollan's excellent book, which I'd recommend to anyone listening, The Botany of Desire, he has a chapter on the potato where he talks about how um, there was a, a plan to take a low-tech solution to dealing, dealing with weeds, a, a BT toxin, and basically planting it into the actual crop itself Thereby, well, once, once resistance to this technique develops, you've thereby taken it out of being available to everyone and, and ruining it for everyone. Again, you know, the, the, the profit motive and the short-term profit motive is, is really over, overriding uh, any other interest, public health or public interest or long-term sustainability of the very practice that is being promoted. The documentary certainly makes a big effort to explain why we need to have more sustainability. 
What steps would you like to see taken in the short term here to, to get things back on the right track? Well, in the first place, I think um, we are moving in the right direction, and that's mostly uh, thanks to people like you, your program, the movie, the fact that the public begins to hear about this and uh, begins to understand. You know, we were used in the 20th century to be thinking and talking about physics and objects like that, you know, computers and so on. This century, the 21st century, is the century of biology. And uh, raising the level of literacy among the public, I think, is the first step. I think it's really important. Because once people see clearly what's happening, I really believe that people would not allow a lot of the things that are happening, would just say, wait a minute, you know, when did we discuss about this? When did we authorize it? And so on. So I think people would naturally take control of the situation over time. I think it is happening. We see it happening here in California, specifically uh, in Vermont, uh, in, in many other countries, especially in Europe, Japan, and so on, where people who will become informed about these matters, they say, you know, great, we, we would like to explore that possibility, but let's not release it into the environment until we're sure that it's safe. Yes, you've been quoted as saying that genetic engineering is probably the largest biological experiment humanity has ever entered into. Strong words. Well, I, I do stand by that. I do believe that's true. Can we talk about another technical issue which, which, which was brought up in the documentary, which I, I hadn't, uh, hadn't thought of, that in, in creating a lot of these varieties, they're attached to a gene that gives them antibiotic resistance, and people have raised the theoretical issue of what if that part of the gene becomes widespread, aren't we then growing antibiotic resistance in all sorts of places where we don't want it? That's correct. It's part of the many different things that need to be done in order to obtain a transgenic plant. Uh, part of it is that you include a, uh, an antibiotic resistance gene so that you can screen your plants by applying antibiotic and just pick up the ones that carry that antibiotic resistance marker, knowing that, that those are the ones that have taken the DNA that you wanted, right? The problem is that that, uh, that marker stays there and goes into the environment with the plant and goes with it, you know, with the hundreds of thousands and millions of acres that are planted to these, to these things. And um, they are picked up readily by bacteria in the soil. They are picked up and passed on to bacteria in the soil, in the water, and so on. So we are promoting by this practice, we are promoting the development of antibiotic resistance, not only in all these different plants, but in bacteria all over the place. So we should not be surprised that we are promoting and aiding what is already a natural phenomenon that is happening, that we are selecting lots of bacterial strains that are resistant to antibiotics uh, by virtue of the overuse of antibiotics in other farm practices. In medicine, I've certainly seen in the past 20 years uh, some of the upside genetically modified organisms. When I started in medical school, they would talk about the differences between pork insulin and beef insulin. Well, these days, if you're a diabetic living in the United States, you're getting actual human insulin made by bacteria. It's been a tremendous, uh, tremendous step in the right direction, example of the potential, I think, of GMOs. But your documentary shows, that I think, a, a lot of where we go wrong when, when, when big money gets involved. That's right. And there's also a big difference there. Um, you know, that insulin that you were talking about is produced under very controlled conditions in a laboratory. There's a difference between that and simply releasing these organisms out into, you know, open public space. Dr. Chappella, where would you recommend our listeners go if they, if they want to get uh, solid information on this topic? Well, I tend to recommend the website of the Pesticide Action Network, which is P-A-N-N-A 
pana.org, pana.org. And there is, there is a wealth of information and discussion about it. We do not have that many experiments. We don't have that much hard data. But there is a lot of information on what's happened to the field in general. I did check out the, uh, the website, the, the futureoffood.com, and they did have a lot of good information on there, too. That's right. That's also a good one. Thank you very much, and we hope that you'll come back to the program and speak with us again. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for your interest and for uh, helping people understand these things. Bye-bye. That was UC Berkeley professor, Dr. Ignacio Chapella. We would remind you that this documentary, The Future of Food, produced by Deborah Coons Garcia, widow of the Grateful Dead's Jerry Garcia, is playing tonight, March 31st, at the Crest Theater, 1013 K Street in Sacramento, and will also be playing tomorrow night, April 1st, at the Veterans Memorial Theater, 203 East 14th Street here in Davis. The program starts... At 6 o'clock with a social hour, the documentary will be screened at 7, followed at 8.45 by a panel discussion with Deborah Coons-Garcia and the person you just heard, Dr. Ignacio Chapella. There will be an optimal intimate after reception, it says on the flyer, um, about 9.30. And there's more information about this event uh, available at the Natural Food Works in Davis, as well as Armadillo Music. In Sacramento, you can, uh, you can get more information at the Natural Food Co-op, as well as the Crest Theater. You're listening to Radio Parallax here on KDVS 90.3 FM, Davis, Sacramento. I'm your host, Douglas Everett, and stay tuned. We'll be back for more in a third segment. And my tunes were played on the heart.